grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Do you guys like going on trips? Raise your hand if you are a trip-going person. There seems to be two kinds of people, and clearly one is in the majority. (laughs) Two kinds of people when it comes to travel. There are those who love to travel and see new places, whether it's a road trip or an airplane or a cruise. They love going out and eating the food and seeing the people and exploring a new place. And then there are those who don't. All right, these are the homebodies who will travel when necessary. Maybe once a year they'll take a vacation, but they don't really love it. And I have discovered, sadly, that I am in that second category. (laughs) Now, it may be because I have small children. I don't know if you've ever traveled before with small children. It's equivalent to having a hangnail. Um, I love my kids, I do, but the sheer amount of stuff you have to take with you when you travel with little kids is insane. You got to get diapers and wipes and clothes and extra clothes and extra clothes for the extra clothes, toys and snacks and medicine. You even have to pack things to bribe them with to get them where you want them to go. So that may be why I don't love traveling right now, but traveling also makes me a little anxious. I don't know if anyone else is like this. I'm an anxious person, but when I have to take a big trip, I get nervous about leaving home and being away. I overthink what to pack, and then I pack too much, and sure enough, the moment I pull away, I am convinced I forgot something. You know that feeling? You're just like, I don't know what it is. Now, usually once I get there and I'm able to relax, I can enjoy it. But by that point and all the money I've spent, I think I could have just stayed home. (laughs) I could have relaxed there. But I know a lot of you, apparently, you're not that way. You just book a trip, you pack your bag, and you go. You don't even triple count how many pairs of socks you packed. How dare you? And you nap on the plane. You just roll, relax, just enjoying it. I, I, I don't know how you do it. This morning, our message is entitled, Before You Go. Before You Go. I want us to think about how to prepare to be sent out by God to accomplish the task that he's given us. I want to show you what we need to do before we go out on God's mission. That's the part of the story we come to today in the book of Exodus. Uh, We saw last week that Moses was called by God out of a burning bush in the wilderness of Midian. Despite settling into an anonymous life for 40 years, God had a clear plan and calling for Moses' life. He was to go before the most powerful man in the known world, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, and demand that he release God's people who were being held as slaves. And then he was to take those people and lead them to a new land called the Promised Land where they would live together with God. Moses heard this great opportunity and he said, yes, oh, thank you, Lord. I've been waiting for this. I was born for this, right? No, not at all. That is not at all what happened, was it? Moses did not want to go. He had a lot of doubts and questions about his ability, and God patiently reassured him throughout all of it of his call and his presence. And eventually Moses gave in. Now we're going to see what Moses did to prepare for the most important task of his life. But here's a challenge for us today. Not just today, but throughout this whole series of, through Exodus. We may wonder, <clears throat> what does this have to do with me? I am not Moses. I've not been called by God for some special spiritual task. This must be one of those books for special Christians, for leaders or pastors or Sunday school teachers. I'm just a regular Christian with a regular job and a regular family. 
Here's the problem with that thinking. There is no such thing as a regular Christian. Okay, there aren't two classes of Christian, the regular ones and the super holy ones that stand on a platform. All of us, no matter what family you come from, what job you work, what your personality type is, how long you've been a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you have been called to a sacred and special task. You have been given the most important job on the planet. God has called you to go out into the world as his representatives and to make disciples of all nations. And this story about Moses and God's people can bring us great encouragement in that task because we're a lot like them. They were regular people too, even though they lived in a different time and culture. They faced many of the same challenges we do today. And they were dealing with the same God we worship today. So just like with all of Scripture, we can take these stories and apply them to our lives. They can teach us about who God is and who we are and why we've been put on this planet. And most importantly, they can point us to Jesus. Jesus told us that all of Scripture points back to him. So let's walk through our passage today. Let's see how Moses prepared to go back to Egypt. And along the way, I want to give you three principles we can take away as we prepare to go into the world as followers of Jesus. So let's start. Look with me at Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. First thing Moses did was go back to his father-in-law and request permission to go back to Egypt. That was the respectful thing to do in this time. But look at what he told his father-in-law. He said that he, he wanted to go back so he could check and see if his brothers were still alive. But that's not exactly the reason Moses was going back to Egypt, was it? It appears that Moses was not being completely honest. Now, it would have been quite difficult to explain the whole God speaking through a burning bush thing. But we continue to get the sense here that Moses was still not very confident in his mission. That was what we saw over and over again in chapter 3. Moses was filled with doubt. He tried everything he could to get out of going to Egypt. But here's how God continues to respond to Moses' continued doubt. He reassures him. Look at verse 19. First, he tells him, he says, Moses, you can go back because all the people who sought to kill you are dead. It had been 40 years since Moses fled from Egypt and everyone had forgotten about him. So that's the first way he reassured him. Here's the second way. He reassured him by letting him, letting him know that his task would not come easy. Look again at verse 21. He said, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And you're going to do all the miracles I showed you. But God told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and that he would not let the people go. 
This whole idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is something we'll talk more about in a few weeks. It's a big part of the story. But but God simply wanted Moses to see here that getting his people out of Egypt was not going to be quick or easy. It's going to take work. Pharaoh was going to refuse, and it was going to get ugly. How would that have been reassuring for Moses? Well, because it would have helped him persevere through the difficulties to come. If Moses knew what to expect and he knew he was going to face an uphill battle, then he would know to keep going. Lastly, God reassured Moses by reminding him of the importance of his people. Look at verse 22. Moses was to tell Pharaoh that these people he held as slaves were no ordinary people, but they were God's firstborn son. This is important for us to remember. Israel is often referred to in the Old Testament as God's son. This speaks to the relationship Israel had with God because of their covenant. We've talked a lot about that idea of covenant. We're going to talk about it a lot more. Remember that God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants back in Genesis to be their God and for them to be his people. Israel was set apart. They were chosen. They belonged to God. And the covenant they made made their relationship official. They became to God like a son. And that meant Pharaoh needed to know that these people he had enslaved and murdered were God's children. That's why Moses was to tell Pharaoh that if you don't let God's firstborn go, he's going to kill your firstborn son. This again was to reassure Moses in his doubt. Before he rode back into Egypt, God wanted Moses to know that, yes, things were going to be difficult. But what he was calling him to do would happen. It would be accomplished because God had sworn a covenant with his people. And these were his special chosen people. God wants us to know the same thing today as we set out on our mission. So here's our first takeaway this morning. Number one, before you go, don't go in doubt. Don't go in doubt. If we are to make disciples of all nations, if we're to be God's representatives on the earth, if we're going to love and impact the community around us, we too need to be reassured of our calling and what God has promised to do through us. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with doubt. I told you already, I am a textbook overthinker. For some reason, I will fixate on things and think them to death. Did I make the right decision? Should I have said that? Usually the answer there is no. Am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? Is this right for me? Does anyone else deal with that? You're at the root of this kind of doubt and worry is actually pride. It's a focus on self and your own ability or what people think of you or how your life's going or how you want it to go or how comfortable you are. So the solution to doubt and to worry is to stop looking to yourself and instead to look to God. It's to be reassured of who God is and what he says about you and what he's called you to do. And the way that God reassures us in our doubts is the same way he reassured Moses. It's through his word. This is reason number 4,837, why you should read your Bible every day. Reading God's word is the antidote to pride and worry and doubt. It's how you take your mind off yourself and put it on God. It's in God's word where we find promises like this one in 2 Timothy 1.7. said, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Or like this one in John 16 where Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It's coming. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Or like this one in Matthew 6 where Jesus also said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we could go on and on and on with this. God has given us his word to reassure us and remind us of who he is. And he inspired men to write it down and put it in a book so that we would not forget it. So if you want, if we want to fulfill God's calling in our lives and be used by him for his glory, we cannot go in doubt. James says in James chapter 1, the person who doubts is like a wave tossed to and fro by the wind. Just being thrown around, don't know which way you're going. That's not the way God wants his people to live. God wants us to be confident, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of who he is and what he says in his word. So instead of going in doubt, we go in full faith in God. Let's continue through our passage. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Circumcision. Now that makes total sense, so let's just move on, okay? Um, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, you're probably asking, as most Christians have forever, what in the world is going on here? This kind of comes out of left field. This is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. I was so tempted to skip it, but I won't. <laughs> Here are some of the questions we have about these verses. Number one, who is God seeking to put to death? It actually doesn't say Moses. It says him. Him. And why would he do that? If it is Moses, why would God try to take out the guy he just did all that convincing to? And why is Zipporah the one who performs the procedure? Is something wrong with Moses? Is he sick? Is he dying? What's going on here? Why is she touching his feet? That's strange. And what is a bridegroom of blood? Well, to be totally transparent with you, we don't have all the answers here. Much has been written on these verses and little has been figured out. So this is a good example for us. What do we do when we come to a difficult verse in the Bible and we're reading along and we say, oh boy, what's going on here? Well, first thing we do is look at the context. What is going on around these verses that could give us some clues? Are there words or are there themes in this passage that we could find in other places in the Bible that might help us to better understand this one? Let's think about that. What is the context here? Remember, Moses was on his way to be God's representative before Pharaoh and the people. He was about to perform a sacred and holy task. And it appears that he has done something to anger God. I do think God is going after Moses. Is there something he's missed and needs to get straightened out before he can represent a holy God. And whatever this something is, it's so important that God might kill him over it. So what is it? What appears to be Moses' failure to circumcise his son. What's what's the big deal about that? 
This is where the larger context of Scripture is helpful. Remember, in Exodus, we're building on Genesis. If you go back to Genesis, and you remember when God made a covenant with Abraham, the sign of that covenant was circumcision for the men. God commanded Abraham and all his male descendants to be circumcised. Like a wedding ring, it was to be a sign that they belonged to God, that they had been marked by him. And that was a very big deal. To not perform the sign was like refusing to wear your wedding ring. It meant you were rejecting relationship with God. You were not identifying yourself or your family as one of God's people. And that seems to be the problem with Moses and his son here. It seems that Moses was not raising his son to be one of God's people. He was raising him to be a Midianite or an Egyptian. So think about it. How could Moses be the leader of God's people and stand before them on God's behalf when he himself was not obeying the first and fundamental thing God had asked his people to do? That's why God was so upset here. Obeying God and belonging to him with the covenant sign was that important. And Moses, of all people, had to know this before he could be used by him. It's fascinating that Zipporah was the one who seems to have known this better than Moses. She was the one who saved his life. We don't know exactly why, but apparently she knew what to do, and she wasn't even an Israelite. She was understandably not happy about having to do this to her own son. I imagine any of us would be. Thus, she called Moses this kind of a slur. You're a bridegroom of blood to me. But what she did was necessary, and her act saved Moses and his entire mission. Now, what could you and I possibly take away from such a strange incident? This is one of those passages we have to be careful not to too literally go and try to apply this. (laughs) But here's the second principle we see in this passage, number two. Don't go in sin. Don't go in sin. Moses was living in open rebellion against God by refusing to honor him with the covenant sign. He was clearly not ready to be used by God because his heart was not fully devoted to him. He was holding something back. And we need to make sure the same thing is not true of us. The Bible makes it repeatedly clear that as followers of Jesus, we are called to pursue holiness. We are called to die to sin, to repent, to confess it to others, and to deal with it. To live above reproach, separate from the world, so that others see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. That does not mean we must be perfect before God can use us. If perfection were the requirement, then I would not be standing here today. Jeremy would not be leading us in worship. You guys know about Jeremy. None of our elders or staff would be serving. None of us would be here because none of us are free from sin. So the application here isn't, hey, you got to work really hard to get your act together and reach perfection for God to use you. No, the application is that you need to be aware of your sin and working to deal with it. Martin Luther, the reformer, famously said, Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. Isn't that a great picture? I love that. See, because we have a sin nature, temptations are going to come. We can't stop the birds from flying over our heads. And sometimes we will give in and mess up. Sometimes the bird will land on our head. 
But letting a bird build his nest in your hair is a whole different thing. See, there's a big difference in giving up and allowing sin to take hold in your life and being okay with that. Listen to me closely. I say this as your brother. Could it be that the reason you are not growing in your faith is because you're living in unrepentant sin? Could it be the reason you don't have joy and peace is because you're living in bitterness or anger or unforgiveness towards someone? Could it be that the reason God is not using you to impact others is because of your pornography addiction or your neglect of the discipleship of your children or your persistent gossip at work? If you want to be used by God, fight for holiness in your life. Make war with your sin. Confess it, deal with it, and find forgiveness and freedom in Christ. Guys, this is not a call to retreat in the guilt and shame and say, well, man, God will never use me. I'm just too messed up. I'm just such a bad sinner. No, this is a call to freedom, to step into the light. There's hope. Because there's no addiction God can't break. There's no person God can't use if you'll just turn from your sin and turn to him. The point is we need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful over our own souls and over each other's souls. We need to prepare ourselves the best we can so that when the opportunity comes to disciple a new believer or share the gospel with a lost person, or to do something for God, we do it with integrity and holiness and for the glory of God and so that we do not compromise the testimony of the gospel in any way. Before you go, go in holiness rather than sin. Let's look at the last section of today's passage, Exodus 4, verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. You remember from last week that Aaron was one of the concessions that God made to help Moses. Moses said, I'm not a good speaker. So God told him Aaron would be provided to speak for him. And here we see the fulfillment of that. God commands Aaron to go meet Moses. And where do they meet? They meet on the mountain of God, the exact place where God spoke to Moses. And now Moses spoke to Aaron. He explained everything, and they went together to the elders of Israel. These were the leaders of God's people, and Aaron shared with them everything. He performed the signs, and here's the response. The people believed, and they worshiped. They realized that their God had not forgotten him, but he'd kept his promises, and he'd come to deliver them. So here's the third principle we can take away from this passage today. Before you go in obedience to God's command, number three, don't go alone. Don't go alone. Throughout the book of Exodus, Moses gets a lot of press. He's one of the most well-known figures in the Bible, and he receives a lot of the credit for leading God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. But one thing we'll see and that we need to remember is that Moses did not accomplish this great purpose alone. 
While he was the appointed leader for God's people, he didn't do it without the help of others. He had to rely on Aaron, his brother, to do his talking. He had to work with the elders and leaders of Israel. And most importantly, he was nothing without the power and presence of God. This entire book, and really the whole Bible, is written to a community of people about a community of people. It's written for the people of God together. And this confirms for us, again, that Christianity and living in obedience to God is not a solo mission. You can't do this alone. God never intended for us to follow him in isolation. We can't do it. No one can. That's why God gave Moses Aaron. He gave David Jonathan. He gave Esther Mordecai. He gave Ruth Boaz. He gave Paul Barnabas. And he's given you and me each other. I cannot emphasize this enough. We live in a time when people are isolated and lonely and desperate for community. I'm convinced one of the big reasons we are seeing increased mental health problems Increased drug overdoses, increased teenage suicide, increased hatred and division is because most people lack meaningful community. We've built online worlds with digital versions of ourselves, carefully crafted and manicured. And now we're discovering that while technology is useful for many things, it can never replace real life community. This is why online church doesn't work. Those two words, online and church, are actually opposites. The word church in the Bible literally means assembly or gathering of people physically together. We, we need that. This is also why some of these things we hear about in the news, like the, the metaverse and artificial intelligence and virtual reality, those may be great tools for us, but they will never fix the problems ailing our society. We need people People who know us and love us and aren't afraid to tell us when we're doing something dumb. People who have the same worldview as us, who have the same purpose, who are living on the same mission. And God designed the perfect community of people to do that, and that's the local church. We are not perfect in and of ourselves. Church is messy. It is full of sinners. But we are a family of people who are united by something greater than human blood. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we're bonded together over something stronger than politics or sports fandom or ethnicity or generation. We're bonded by the same Holy Spirit that indwells each of us. What a gift we have in each other. When's the last time you thanked God for that? What a privilege and honor it is to be a part of a local church. It's people all over the world who would love to have some of the things we have. The question for you is then, are you taking full advantage of what you have in this community of believers? Do you just slip in and slip out of service each week, get your weekly dose of God and go on with your life? Or are you building relationships with the people in this community? Do you talk to people before and after service? Do you show up a little early and stay a little later to fellowship? Do you introduce yourself to someone you don't know? Do you invite them to your home for a meal? Do you pray for the people of this church? Do you encourage them? Are you actively looking for ways to serve them? If not, 
you are missing out on one of the greatest tools available for your spiritual growth. Like Moses, God has called us to a big task. It seems impossible to reach the world and make disciples of all nations, to love and impact the community. Just like Moses, he does not expect us to do it alone. But he's given us one another to do this task together. Together. So we can't go in doubt, but we trust God's word and his promises. We can't go in sin, but we pursue holiness so that we might be a vessel to be used by him. And we can't go alone, but we join arms with the people of God that he's given us to help us in this task. And I was thinking, man, if only there were a simple way to accomplish these three points. Like if only there was a way to make sure that we were spending time in the word and fighting sin and doing life with others who wanted the same things. Like if only there was some sort of group that existed for that purpose that your church offered and that your pastor just won't stop talking about. Guys, this is the purpose of discipleship groups. This is the point. It's to prepare you each week before you go out into the world to make sure you don't go in doubt or in sin or alone. It's to give you a small band of brothers or sisters to go into battle with you, praying for you, encouraging you, and challenging you. I was reminded of this just a few weeks ago. I was going to have a meeting with a guy who does not know Jesus. And I was going to have the opportunity to share and talk with him about faith and answer some of his questions and share the gospel. So I, I, before I went, I texted my D group. And I just simply asked them to pray for me over that next hour. And immediately they responded. They said, I, we got you. We got it. We're praying. And as I met with this guy and I got the opportunity to share Christ, I knew they had my back and were interceding on my behalf. So I didn't go in doubt, but I knew God's word and God's promises and God's call in my life to be a witness for Jesus. I didn't go in sin, but I went in knowing my, knowing my need for God's grace and guarding myself before I shared with someone else. And I didn't go alone, but I went with my guys praying for me, knowing that next time we met next week for D group, I would get to share with them what happened. So what about you? Just like Moses, God is calling you to go. Are you ready? Are your bags packed? If not, what do you need to do to get there? What do you need to do today? Would you bow your head with me?